When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. According to the Department of Defense, one in five veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. The social and economic costs of PTS are immense, and the Department of Veteran Affairs reported in a February 2013 study that the veteran suicide rate in the United States is 22 suicides per day, or one every 65 minutes. Veterans now account for 20% of suicides in the United States. Our guest today, Richard Casper, is one of those soldiers who returned home reliving the helplessness, fear, and horror associated with the trauma he experienced in Iraq. He struggled with depression and suicidal ideation. But then, and I don't want to give anything away because we dive into this in the episode, he found the healing power of art and music. And he became an artist. And it pulled him out of his depression. And in his pursuit of art, he's created art that's gotten the attention of Time Magazine, the iconic School of the Art Institute of Chicago. That's where Walt Disney went. Countless prominent country music artists have been paying attention and supporting the work he does. And he even has gotten to spend time with President George W. Bush. After experiencing firsthand the impact music and art had on his own recovery, Richard co-founded an organization called Creative Vets to help other veterans who are suffering. Richard's story is unique and powerful and surprising, and he was such a great guy to talk to. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. And so we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into my conversation with Richard Casper. I got to see you share your story at a WeWork event a few months ago. Um, immediately, I was hooked. Part of it is just like your personality, super fun. Uh, the other part is that your story is this like next level story of somebody who encounters something difficult and chooses not to turn to apathy or cynicism, but ultimately to turn towards creating a solution so that other people don't have to struggle in the same way that you've struggled. And so I want to bring it back all the way back to the beginning and uh, just talk about, hey, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I'm uh, from – oh, wait. First of all, thank you so much for all <laughs> those compliments. I'll keep taking them. But uh, I'm from a small town in Illinois called Washburn, and uh, there's 1,100 people in the town. And it's so small, we consider it a village. That's wild. Um, it's like a farming community and um, a lot of corns and beans. And uh, I was in a 
my graduating class in high school had 22 kids in it. And we co-op with a bunch of other schools, cities, <laughs> I mean, like to, to bring them all together to get that 22. That's amazing. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of where I grew up. It was awesome. I that's great. It. Wait, how many siblings do you have? So I had three siblings. Yeah. Okay. And just tell me what you said. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, people see me now and see some of the stuff that I've achieved and, and a lot of people, and I've had people strip tell me like, oh, you must come from a good family and stuff. I'm like, actually... All three of my siblings, including my sister, have been to prison, been to jail, uh, on house arrest, to like Department of Corrections. It's it's been a crazy life, and I'm the youngest of all four of them. So a lot of people thought I'd lead that same path. Yeah, so, I mean, by the time I was seven, I was I remember in my parents' basement, I held like a pound of marijuana, and he's like, "That's a pound of marijuana," and I'm like, "Oh, this is cool. What? I don't understand what to do with it." But um, I would say if if I had like a superpower, it would be identifying the things that were around me and, and knowing what's bad and what's right at a, like a super young age when people wow. really shouldn't. Yeah. Because I started noticing a trend. I was like, well, my, uh, my dad didn't graduate high school. He got his GED. My mom graduated high school and never went to college. All three of my old, older siblings didn't even make it out of high school. And I saw what was the theme between all of them. Like my dad drank a lot of alcohol. My brother's sister did drugs and drank alcohol and did all this stuff. And I'm from this super small, it's a poor family, small town, nobody gets out kind of thing. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it's the alcohol and the drugs that are keeping them from like being where they need to be. So I'm just never going to do that. And to this day, I'm 33, I think. <laughs> I'm 33. <laughs> and I've never even tasted beer. Like wow. I've never tried alcohol. I've never like did any drugs. And it was legitimately a commitment to myself being like, I think this is the problem. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That, dude, that's fascinating that you had that sort of insight. Uh, like, what age do you think that that came? I mean, because I was, I mean, I was in that same realm of being tempted by all this stuff yeah. at that, that young age. So I just, I just remember that point in my life of knowing not to try things, probably like seven, eight, nine years old, where I, was, I, I could have fell in that path because that's the age that kids, even in that town, were starting to get hooked on stuff like that because they were just being introduced by everyone because everyone knew everyone. You'd be in kindergarten and you know who the seniors are just because ultimately in the whole school from like kindergarten to senior, I mean, you're looking at only like a few hundred kids. (laughs) That's like my graduating class, which is small, but it's like, uh, that's the whole town. That's fascinating. Okay. And so what year did you graduate high school? 2003. 2003. Okay, so you were a sophomore, junior when 9-11 happened. Yeah, and so that was obviously a huge impact on our life. Like, yeah. Grew up real fast. Do you remember where you were? Yeah, I mean, I was in my my uh, my first period, and I remember them saying, like, well, the second period that we were going into was called Current Affairs, which is pretty much you just watch the news. And so I was like, well, this is this is convenient because they're like, hey, in that first period, right, before, right when the bells ring, they're like, hey, Something just went down. We're going to bring TVs in all these rooms to talk about it. And so we went in that current affairs yeah. class. And I still remember sitting there and watching that, like, second plane go into the tower and everything. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. So we, yeah, definitely knew where I was. Do you remember, like, what the class was talking about? Like, what what the conversation was? Since you were in that class where you probably talk about these things? No, there was legitimately no conversation. Really? I mean, it was, I mean, sitting there and watching this stuff and just, like, you're just kind of... Is this real life? Yeah. Like looking back and forth, the teacher has no words. Like how can he teach on what's happening right now? No, no. Um, 
And it, yeah, it was, there was no lessons, no, no nothing. The rest of the day, it was just a somber day. Nobody talking about anything. Um, just everyone in dis- disbelief, no words, uh, just going home to your parents being thankful that, you know, that we're alive and that we're yeah. just there. Oh my gosh. And being so far disconnected too, because my town is super small, but also the closest um, chain of anything is like 30 miles away, like closest Walmart, 30 miles away. We don't have any chains in our town. Um, six churches, two bars, and uh, like a Casey's General Store, which is just a gas station. <laughs> it's a great ratio. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's a, so yeah, it was an experience. So that was a pretty pivotal moment, though, in, in kind of your decision to, to kind of pivot your life. Is that right? Yeah. It, there, was already, there was already this path to the military. My dad, who's one of 12, um, his six brothers all served in the military, and none of them Marine Corps, though. So that was a changing point to where I really feel like I decided the Marine Corps because I was like, you know what? I am going to go into the military. I feel like that's my calling, um, and it's my path. And then 9-11 happened, and I was so frustrated, and I was so angry. And even before 9-11, before we knew who was behind it, I was writing papers on how evil Saddam Hussein was, like all the people that he killed, like his own people. And I was just kind of like almost self-motivating myself, too, to say, uh, why can't I be the one to capture Saddam Hussein? Like someone has to do it. Why can't it be me? Yeah. So uh, I want to be the first one overseas and I want to be the first one to actually have the opportunity. And then 9-11 happened. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the Marine Corps because Marine Corps infantry, first over, first to fight. Um, oh, really? I didn't know that. It's Right now, it's kind of jumbled in what the actions are, but the Marines are supposed to be the police force where we go in super quick and fast and secure a place, and then the army comes in and holds it for the rest of the time because oh, they have a bigger, bigger force. Um, but with this, if we were one of the first on the ground, but it was kind of a joint because of how much stuff was going on. It was it was a joint effort, but a lot of times we'd push first, and then the army would occupy, and then we'd push, and the army would occupy. Because um, we took Fallujah, the Marines took Fallujah, and then the army came and occupied. So the Marines Got did it. the search. So that's just where I wanted to be. And so you joined right after you graduated? I joined when I was actually 17. Um, oh, I didn't know you could do that. You only can if your parents sign up for it. You don't leave <laughs> until yeah. you're 18. Um, but you, and this is what I told my parents, we were at the height of, you know, 9-11 happened. I'm like, I'm going to join when I'm 17. And my mom's like, my mom and dad were both like, we don't want you to. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm going to either sign when I'm 18 or you guys are going to sign when I'm 17. And I get a year to learn all the fundamentals of like being a Marine and be more prepared. So they thought that was a better optimistic approach rather than being just normal teenager be like no i want to sign up um i gave strategy like legitimate hey this is benefiting me if i learn more through this MEPS program or through the like pre-marine corps stages that i would be working with the recruiters there and um so they signed me up and i was like i did i was so even like dumb about what jobs were available i thought the only thing marines did was like go fight i didn't understand that there's photography jobs in the Marine Corps. There's <laughs> admin jobs. And I just went, and they're like, what do you want to be? I was like, uh, whoever's going and fighting. And he's like, well, we have positions for combat engineers. And I was like, ooh, what's that? They're like, you blow stuff up and you you build stuff. And I was like, that sounds fun. Let's do that. And then I looked to the guy next to me. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, infantry. I was like, well, what's that? And they're like, they're the guys kicking the door. So like, no, I want to do that. And so I yeah, signed up for infantry. Wow. Um, and I left two weeks out of high school. Like I graduated. Two weeks later, I was on the on the bus. Really? Yeah, so I never had like a senior kind of summer or anything like that. That's wild. Were you, so going 
like going through your senior year and I guess those two weeks, were you afraid or was it more excitement? Like what was, what were those emotions? Yeah, I think it was, I was just excited. I was, uh, I don't really remember ever feeling the fear because I feel like this is my calling and I'm like, I'm very faith-based. I, I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that if I believe that I'm going to go to heaven and I was so secure in where I was at the time that I didn't care what was going to happen. I just knew I'd be in a good place if it did. I just felt like yeah. I was, I was, I had this calling in me and I think you have to have that. So a lot of people, when I tell them, oh, I was Marine Corps, I fought in war, all this stuff. They say a lot of times, I was going to join, but then this happened because I had this career. I'm like, no, I am so glad you didn't join, not because I think you'd be bad at it, but I think you have to have that thing inside you that nobody else has that says, I need to serve, I have a higher purpose, and I need to protect Um, because those are the guys I want to fight alongside. That makes sense. Yeah. You said uh, I was really secure at the time. Do you feel like that shifted at all for you? Not during, there was only one time in war, and we can get to that when we tell that story, that I was legitimately afraid. Um, and that was more about actually actually thinking I knew the time of my death. Because before, it's like, I could run around freely and be like, hey, if I die, I die, and that's cool, I'm going to a better place. But thinking, in a few minutes, I'm going to die, that's a different kind of yeah. idea. So that's yeah. why I was so scared. And then coming home, too, it was I was in a weird place. Yeah. But, Okay, so you go off to war. How long was training before you went? Well, actually, so something crazy happened while I was in boot camp. So at boot camp, Marine Corps, three months long, crazy. And they came in within like the first few weeks and said I was a special tester. And so that's when I'm like, Wait, oh. what does that mean? That's what I was wondering. I was like, <laughs> holy crap, they think I'm dumb. Oh, I'm a special <laughs> tester. I was like, I'm not this dumb. Uh, and I went to this little area in boot camp with a bunch of other Marines, like 200, 300, I can't even remember at the time. And then they'd ask us a bunch of weird questions and then we'd leave. And then two weeks later, we get called back for the special testing and there'd be less people. And I'm like, are you killing these guys? Like, what's <laughs> happening? Um, and then we go back. And then, so this happened for like two months, um, still not knowing what a special tester was. So we're down to like 20 Marines. Um, and they come in and they say, you you guys have been selected to guard the president of the United States, either at Camp David or White House Communications. And so I'm just like, this is 2003, height of like the surge, like they're about to push in war. I'm infantry, ready to rock. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like, you want me to go this way when my path is this way? Yeah. And honestly, I was at a point to where I almost went the other way. Like I was, I was just like, I need to go to war. And I really thought about it. And again, I was thinking about my future. I said, well, I could do this and then go to war. Like, I could I could take a step back because my family's going to love it. Who else gets this opportunity to go, you know, work with the president of the United States? Yeah. So I ended up taking that um, gig, and I still had to do everything when it comes to infantry. After boot camp, I had to go to SOI, which is School of Infantry, for two months. And then from there, instead of going to the fleet, which is just the Broad Marine Corps, which would go to war, I went to security forces school um, for two months to learn pretty much how to be a police officer, how to do takedowns, how to handcuff, how to use shotgun, pistol, all that fun stuff, uh, pressure points. And then so after two months of that, I went to Washington, D.C. for 11 months. And uh, it's it's where you wait for your clearance to go through because they have to send the FBI to your, your town to uh, research, yeah. do all the background checks. Totally. So I had to be there until my background check went through. And so it took 11 months for that to happen. And they don't ask who you think they would ask. Like when the FBI shows up to that little town, they're not going to my mom. They're not going to my siblings. They're not going to my best friends. 
They're going to my my friend's older sister who I've never really talked to. They're going to my neighbor who I've never talked to. That's They're going to my, my kindergarten teacher just to see yeah. who I was, how I acted, like all these kind of other people. And I'm like, that's, that's weird, smart. but it makes sense. And um, so then when they when they select you, you get a choice between White House Communications, which is at Bowling Air Force Base, or Camp David. And because I'm at such a small town and I'm more of a country boy, I was like, I want Camp David because it's up in the woods. Yeah. I get a, it's more intimate. And um, White House Communications sounded cool because you get to fly around with the president in like a suit. Um, but <laughs> I was like, that, that don't only, you can only do that once you're senior enough. Camp David, you're automatically on the ground in the woods hanging out. And so I chose Camp David. And I was there for uh, 14 months when they asked me if I wanted to stay up there or if I wanted to to transition out. And I said, I need to transition out. I need to go to war. So when you were there, though, you were there for 14 months. So you're there whether the president's there or not. Yeah, so we're pretty much the security. Got it. So sometimes there's nobody up there. No, Yeah, no president, no, like, no dignitaries, but it's always like... It's, it's always, always secure. secure, yeah. Fascinating. And you, but you probably met the president a few times. Yeah, so and it was George W. Bush who was up there at the time, and um, over 22 visits he had up there. He really, he's one of the presidents that utilized it the most because it's meant to save taxpayers money by them not going to another place for a holiday or going yeah. anywhere else. So every Christmas, his whole family, his whole uh, wife's family, everyone came up just there because it's not too far from the White House, and it's it's already secured. So... He utilized it a lot, and I got to meet him and his father. Um, you don't really have conversations with him there because your security, you're supposed yeah. to be hidden. But there's a few opportunities where I actually got to meet him, and That's I have cool. like I was able to get three photos with him too because in Christmas time he made sure he took a photo with everybody on the entire base. That's amazing. Yeah, and That's so great. it was really awesome. That's super cool. So you get to the end of these 14 months, and you're thinking, I still have a hankering to. Go over to yeah, because my friends, some of my friends stayed up there. They knew that if they stayed up there, they just end their Marine Corps career there for the four years. And I knew I couldn't do that. I was, I feel like crap if I ended my four years just doing that. So I was, I was like, I wanna, I wanna go to war. And they sent me to Twenty Nine Palms, California, with a unit called Two Seven. And I was doing like a workup to go to war with them. It's an infantry unit, and I was, I was doing this workup. And then after a few months, they said. Actually, you don't make our deployment requirements because you get out June of 2007 and we b- deploy January 2007. So we'll still be in Iraq when you're supposed to get out. I was like, well, crap. I was like, can you <laughs> send me to the next people deploying? And they did. They sent me to uh, a first tank battalion where I left with a mounted infantry unit. Um, and even there, when I was doing my train up with them, again, they came to me and said, hey, you missed our deployment by one month. And I said, well, can I just can I extend for a month? Can I stay in the Marine Corps for a month? Is that a thing? They said, yeah. I was like, okay, sign me up. I'm going to extend for one month just so I can go to war. Okay, so this is fascinating to me because everything you're saying like, is the opposite of what I would do. <laughs> and so I'm just, maybe you can help me understand what do you feel like your core motivation is? You know, Because it's been years since 9-11. Yeah. And Saddam, what's his, is Saddam Hussein is yeah. still alive? At yeah, this he's point? still alive. I, think, I don't think he's been capture that moment um, in time. He might have been actually at that time. It's that thing I talked about before, that internal need for like my superpower I talked about earlier about the future. I think super, super long term. 
And so when I think about these wars, whether they be unjust in some people's eyes or just in others, I think that if we don't have a volunteer fighting force now that's willing to go fight for anything, that in the future, and you've seen this now even yeah. in the media, there's less and less enrollment in the military now because of how, many, how much back and forth is going on. Soon we won't have anybody volunteering for the military, and there'll be a draft, and you'll have a bunch of people that don't want to fight and don't want to go over. And so I, have this, I just had this need to protect and make sure the future is protected. And I just had this calling that I had yeah. to go and I need to make a difference. So it was, in many ways, it sounds to me like it's less about the actual combat on the ground, less about the impact you're going to have in Iraq. It's more about what's best for the country overall. Yeah, and it, even seeing, like being on the inside of the actual military, seeing the schools that we built over there, seeing the legitimate change that we made, but seeing the pure evil that existed over there, like I, I wanted to be the person that was there helping all the good stuff and getting rid of all the bad stuff because yeah. they were so oppressed. Like everything that happened, they weren't voting at the time. By the time we left there, they were voting. Like there was so much good stuff that happened. It was almost like we sent a bunch of missionaries too because at our church in Fallujah, we had so many Iraqis at our church. Like people that were starting to believe that um, positivity, just believing that they could do something, that they'd, they'd stop oppressing people. And uh, it, it was just, everything in mind was a win. It wasn't like I was war hungry. I didn't yeah. want to just go kill people. I honestly don't want to, didn't ever want to kill anybody. I just wanted to go make a difference and see how I could do that. Okay. You're helping me understand a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard. Like I said, yeah. if you don't have that internal, like, I'm going to protect the future and I need to like, I don't know. It's, I think a lot of people don't even know why they have this calling, but luckily I've, I've, and the talks I give is transition from your warrior brain to your artist brain. I think tapping into my artist brain is what helped me, what allowed me to think about my subconscious and why I do things that I do. And I don't even think I knew when I went overseas why I wanted to go so bad until afterwards. And I realized, I realized I looked back at my whole life and thought of why I made these certain decisions I did and what the ultimate goal and why I'd make those. And it was all about the future and about protection. Okay, so you head over there and you have already agreed to extend by an extra month. You're hanging out with tanks. Uh, what is life like on the ground? Um, so we were mounted infantry. So we were attached to a tank platoon or a tank company, but we actually didn't work with tanks directly. Okay. Our um, overall... It's in a tank uh, battalion because they were supposed to scout for IEDs before the tanks came in. Um, and so we were, we were kind of, tanks are so hard to move around that we'd be the mobile. We're in Humvees, just like normal. Got it. Um, just like a normal little truck. And so we were just going on different missions. Our main mission was to secure MSR Mobile, which is a major highway in Fallujah that goes from Abu Ghraib, Abu Ghraib prison, however you say that, to the Tartar River. And so we patrolled up and down and made sure there was no bombs so that we could secure the supply lines and help any of the, the civilians who might get hit. And so within the first four months, my Humvee had been struck and hit by four improvised explosive devices. And my buddy was shot and killed beside me during a, uh, like an ambush with a sniper. And so I ended up with, and I didn't know this till afterwards, but they said I was unfit for duty because my brain was too damaged, um, and I ended up with a traumatic brain injury. But like I said, I didn't know that. So four months, after four months when they said, you can't do your job anymore, so I can't go outside the wire, which means leave the base, uh, Camp Fallujah. But we still have mortars coming in. It's still like uh, a different time or a different kind of mentality. But I had to stay on the base for the next three months of my deployment and just sit there while my guys were out 
like patrolling in harm's way and it made me feel like crap like really made me feel like crap um because i felt like i needed to be out there i didn't know i had a brain injury so i'm sitting here like i'm good how am i unfit for duty but i wasn't using my brain i didn't have a need for it it was war war is this most simple thing there is don't die you're not thinking about your bills. You're not thinking about back home. You're you're legitimately like my job. I gotta go. I'm gonna go work out. I'm gonna go eat food. I gotta go patrol. I'm gonna go work out. Gonna eat food. Gonna go patrol. There's like that's all you have to do. So I didn't have to use my brain. So I didn't truly know how bad it was. What are those next three months like then? There was little things that I didn't pick up on at the time. They were telling me I had like a lot of little little jobs that they'd have me do, like make people feel sandbags before they go to the chow hall. I had to go running. They call me a runner. So if the COC, like the central command, needed someone, I would have to run to their hut and get them. And so they would be like, hey, go get Corporal Johnson, room 323. By the time I heard 323, I forgot the corporal's name. So I'd be like, Corporal, who was it? And they'd say, Johnson. And I'd forget the number of the room. So I'd say, what, huh. what's the room number? And then I'd start getting yelled at. So I got to a point where I'd, I'd just try to remember the number, not the person. I'd just go knock on the door and be like, one of you is needed at COC. And just like, run off. Yeah. I didn't, and, but I didn't really pick up on that as a problem. I was just like, I'm just dazed from these, from these blasts. Yeah. Like, I had migraines for a month straight. I just thought it was, it was a phase I was going through. Um, and so I didn't really bat an eye at it. But it, so it was kind of... It was kind of like manual labor work and random stuff that they just keep me busy all day. Yeah, and I was lashing out a lot more too. I didn't, I didn't really pick up on that either. But and what the, was that from? Was that from it, essentially PTSD or? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think both because they they run around the same line, and I did. They would ask me to do a lot of um, admin stuff, so they say, "Hey, I need seven copies of this same sheet of paper," and I would try to do it. And if I couldn't understand how to work something, I would just like freak out. And I'm not like that, so. I didn't, again, I didn't know what was happening yeah. and I wasn't, I didn't know any symptoms back then. TBI wasn't a thing. PTSD wasn't a thing. Um, nobody really talked about it. And so I had no idea. Nobody around me had no idea. It was just like, okay, he's still, he's still a little buzzing from the blast. You reached the end of your time deployed. How do you come home feeling? So I didn't have time to really think too. So I'm, I'm coming home and the moment we touch down, I'm checking out of the Marine Corps. Like getting out, yeah. So I'm more excited about you know living my life. So I'm like, oh cool, I'm super pumped. We touch down. I'm just I run and I I'm checking out. They say, do you need to see medical? I'm like, I don't think so because they didn't check me out in Iraq like they were supposed to. So nope, all this stuff I checked out. Didn't get medical separated. Didn't get nothing. Which I was, I found out later I should have been medically separated okay. and retired, but I'm not. Um, oh, interesting. What yeah. does that mean? It's because I was unfit for duty. They would retire me out of the Marine Corps rather than I just checking out. So I'd get benefits for the rest of my life because I was injured there. Oh. Um, and I'd be, have access to military bases. I'd be a retiree. And uh, I didn't know I needed help. They didn't know I needed help. And it's too late to change that. Yeah, I could I could change it, I think, if I go through some boards, like some med boards, yeah. like post. but. I've been so busy that I haven't really, I don't think about me as much as I do other people. So I've been, ever since I've had my mission, I've been just running after it. Yeah. And, and slowly, but sure, like it took me 11 years to get my Purple Heart. Really? I, yeah, I wasn't, even though I was injured over there, it didn't, like they didn't submit it. So it was a slow process. Every every chance I get, I get some downtime. I was like, oh, I'll submit my paperwork to get my Purple Heart. Um, so it took 11 years cause that's how long, like that's it right there. Yeah. <laughs> so you came out and you, uh, you were just ready to be done. Oh yeah. So I was ready to be done. I got out and I went back home and again, I didn't know I had these, these problems and I didn't have to use my brain again because I had a, I had a Harley and I went 
I went to Sturgis. Um, actually, another crazy event that happened too was a month after I was out, I hit a deer on my Harley. Oh no! Um, while I was still in Iraq, uh, I sent home money to put a front fairing, which is like I had a Road King Harley, and the front fairing is the one that has a speaker system. It's that front little yeah, um, like plastic piece that you put on there, and I think actually that's what saved my life. Because I had that on, and I was riding in Maryland, and I was just jamming out. I still remember it was Bucky Covington. It was one of his songs. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. Because it says we rode bikes with no helmets, and still, still here we are. Oh, and no. I had a fake helmet on. I didn't have a real one. So I'm just sitting here, and this deer comes over, and I smoke it. And it flies, and I fly. And I'm going like 50, and I'm like rolling. And I'm just sitting there on the ground like, I don't want to die. I just got back to my rack, and a deer's <laughs> going to take me out. Um, I ended up being like I fractured my, my finger and like was super bruised um but i actually survived that but other than that i went and i i just lived my life for six months again not using my brain i didn't have a job because i just got out of the marine corps i went to sturgis i was having fun and i was like okay now it's it's about time that i i start pursuing my next career so i'm gonna go to college i'm gonna study business i'll just go back home to to where i live but somewhere where there's actually a college so i yeah. went to bloomington illinois and I said, I'll just do a community college for, for two years to get my associates, and I'll transfer to a state college. But I'm going to study business yeah. because I want to be in business. And um, I enrolled in college. And, my, and it requires your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when I found out the hard way. I failed my first class. I was having all these problems. Uh, I, I was like, okay, i got to do something about this. I'm going to go to the VA hospital and just see what's wrong. I don't think this is just – my head's not just hurting anymore. It's, there's something wrong. And so – Went to the VA hospital, and that's when they dos- diagnosed me with left traumatic brain injury, PTSD, um, tinnitus, TMJ, uh, just a ton of stuff. And I was, I was like, holy crap. So I'm sitting here thinking, they told me straight up, you can't learn new technical skills. It's going to be really hard for you, your short-term memory to, to keep stuff unless it's something like super exciting, something that you're already engaged with. Um, you're going to have all these problems for the rest of your life, pretty much. So I'm sitting here. I'm 22 years old, and I have a brain injury, and I'm not going to be able to do a lot of stuff. And so if killing yourself was a zero and 100 was you before war, I was at like a nine. I was sitting there thinking, like, and my faith in God is the only thing that really, really kept me above water. Because I still, in the optimism, I was still like, well, if I'm going to do this, I have to just, I have to find a new route. I have to find something different um, to apply myself to be able to, I was like, well, let's look back. I was, I guarded the president of the United States. So I have a lot of awesome, and I have a, a really high clearance with that because a lot of people don't know there's actually, there's three clearances above top secret. Huh. So it's called Yankee white. And so there's Yankee white category three and then Yankee white category two and then Yankee white category one, which is what the president has. I had Yankee white category two. So I was able to hold a loaded weapon next oh, to the president. Wow. Um, and so I, I had a clearance. I had the experience. All I needed was a degree to be like an actual FBI agent, CIA agent, because um, you just need a degree. It doesn't matter what field it's in. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do something crazy. And because I have these new anxieties, these new depression, like I can't really function. I was, I was so bad. My anxieties and everything crept on me so bad that I had to do one-on-one speeches with my speech teacher in college because I couldn't get up in front of class in Man. front of these the 18 wow. or 19 year old kids. So I went from in high school, even though there's only 22 kids, I was prom king. I was class clown. I went infantry, Marine Corps, could do anything, um, speak in front of anybody. I was a leader. And then I'm at this community college where I can't even get up in front of class. I was getting sick every single morning. I would physically throw up, have diarrhea because it was making me, my body just ache. 
And I was like, okay, now I really can't do anything. What am I going to do? I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to try to do, I was never an artist and I was never a songwriter, never anything like that. But I said, I'm, I was pretty good at drawing. I'm just going to take an easy art class. I'm going to get a degree in fine arts. Like, <laughs> like almost like it was a cop out. Like, yeah, you're uh, like, oh, I'm, easy. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to draw <laughs> stuff. Uh, be with those weirdos. <laughs> um, and like, legitimately, that's how I thought. That was my, my, my process at the time. And uh, so I started in a community college at Heartland Community College, taking art, doing art classes and creative writing classes. <laughs> That's incredible. That's, <laughs> I love that. This big six foot five Marine on a Harley. I showed up to class on a Harley cut off shirt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. And so there's I, a point in my life where I had more cutoffs than shirts with sleeves on them. That, that transition probably <laughs> 2010 maybe is when I started getting more sleeves than cutoffs. It's not a great look. <laughs> I just wanted to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about the sponsor of this week's episode of Sounds Good, Schmitz Naturals. Okay, so Schmitz Naturals is on a mission to change the way you think about natural. They make deodorant and toothpaste and soap. And my wife and I started going through the process of slowly swapping out all of the toxic products in our home for clean and natural products. We started probably about a few years ago and you know we weren't trying to just go spend a bunch of money all at once. Basically, one by one, anytime that we would run out of a product, we would just choose a more natural alternative. We knew that making small changes to our lifestyle could ultimately benefit our health in huge ways. And so we just started doing that. And I was so happy when I found Schmitz. I use their soap and deodorant every single day. And I'm pretty sure that I've tried every single scent that they make at this point. And I'll tell you that my two favorite scents are cedarwood and juniper and activated charcoal. And here's what's cool. For listeners of Sounds Good, Schmitz is offering free shipping when you use the code good at schmitznaturals.com. So you can also go and try every scent like I have. Just go to schmitznaturals.com today and use our special code good to get free shipping and to help support this podcast. Schmitz Naturals. Smell good, do good. Okay, now back to the rest of our conversation. Okay, you show up at art class, and what do the other classmates think? Yeah, I don't know what they thought. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine. Um, the teacher loved it, and a lot of them, I mean, I remember this creative writing teacher that's just like, I love it, you're this big marine tattoos but you're talking about your feelings <laughs> and um, and it was clear that you were in the military like you talked about it or like yeah i wore okay. like my my marine corps cami pants that i had i cut into shorts <laughs> like i said it was a bad look uh, it was like marine corps you've come a long way i know and my wife's a, a big part of my my new style um <laughs> she pretty much like don't wear that wear these i'm like okay yeah i came a long way since then but <laughs> i was going to these art classes and i think it was a, it was I think I was kind of being snubbed. I think it was so weird having this jock-looking, you know, infantryman in their class that they kind of didn't didn't take to me as much. It, it took a minute for them because I was still, like, my anxiety is impression. I was very off. But then once, once I start getting to know someone, my personality comes out, and usually everyone's kind of attracted to that. So it doesn't matter what... what yeah race religion like anything you're at you you kind of you're dynamic you're it's like, like they they still come yeah. to it because i'm just so open to everybody about everything um but at that time though i wasn't open about obviously what i was going through because i didn't know how to talk about it and i had a great teacher named mac um 
who was just very accepted. He knew he had a, a, a daughter that had um, some problems with anxieties and stuff. So he was very good with me, like talking to me about some stuff. And I still remember. So I was, I was a good drawler and I was drawing this photo. It took me a while, but I, I was finally like, you know what? I had this need inside of me. I didn't know where it came from to do something about Luke, who Luke Yepsen, who was my buddy who was shot and killed beside me. And I had this photo of me at his grave because I go to his house every single year. I go to Houston. I fly out there and I, I visit his grave on like his death anniversary. And, um, and I had this photo that my uncle took of me at his grave with my arm up on his headstone. And I just love like how it was positioned and everything. And I was, I'm just going to try to do this. I want this for me. So I'd position myself away from most of the other students, and I, I would start it on this mission. It was like a chalk pastel drawing. And I got to the point to where I had me colored in. I had his headstone colored in. I had these roses colored in. The only thing left was the background, which was all grass. So that color's green. The teacher comes up, and he looks at it. He's like, hey, man, have you ever thought about this? What about doing the background a color that doesn't make sense to the image? But it makes sense to the way you feel inside. I was like, that sounds dumb. I don't want to do that. This is a really good. I'm, I'm doing so really good. So far, this is awesome. Yeah, I don't want to screw this up. this. Um, but I just took a shot with it. And I said, okay, what does he mean by this? I was like, I had so many feelings. But the only thing I was like, I'm just going to do red. I'm just, and I colored everything red in the background. And so one thing I didn't know about art was that you had to do critiques. Because I'm not in a realm of doing art before. So I'm like. I did not know that you had to do critiques. You had to put your piece up on a wall and other people had to talk about it. And so that day came and I was dreading that day, but I put my stuff up on the wall. I pinned it up um, and he's like, Richard, do you want to talk about your piece? I was like, Mac, no, I do not. (laughs) I was like, I want to know what other people think about it. And I'm sitting back and the students take turns and they say, you put red on there because you loved him. You put red on there because you watched him die. Like you saw the blood. You put red on there because you're angry that he died. And I'm sitting here thinking, how do they know? All the, like all these feelings made sense. Like even though they're all different feelings, they all made sense to me. And I was like, holy crap. I didn't have to tell anybody how I felt. I didn't have to verbally speak it because that was my problem at the time. My anxiety is anticipation anxiety of telling someone my story would cause me to throw up. And I was like, I just told my story without speaking a word. It's like, there's something to this. And so I really dived into this idea of like conceptual art, how to hide things in these and paintings and these sculptures and how to tell my story in a different way. And it got to the point where I'm at this community college um, at Heartland, Illinois, and there's this representative from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago who comes down and she says, hey, we're the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Our alumni are George O'Keefe, Walt Disney, all these people, <laughs> and we're just up in Chicago. Here's our spiel. And I'm like, this this school sounds cool. Never heard of it. Um, I was like, hey, Mac, do you think I should I should go to this school? And he's like, no. And it was more like, <laughs> not that he wasn't confident in me. He was more like protecting me. Yeah. It's like someone, almost everybody, you know, if you start a business, if you start a career that's not the, not the norm, people are just going to want to protect you and say, you know what, you have a really small chance of making it, probably not do this just because they want to yeah. come for you. That was the same thing. But again, I'm so optimistic. Like I said, um, being so optimistic, I thought that I could capture Saddam Hussein. I was like, ah, this is the only school I'm going to apply for. Um, <laughs> so I applied for the school and I got in. 
uh, I, I had to do some talking. I brought up my portfolio of like seven pieces, and they require like 15 <laughs> to 20. Brought up my portfolio of like seven pieces, almost all of them still life, besides like that one um, that I did of Luke. And they're looking at it, and they're like, you're a great draftsman. I can see like you could draw well. But the thing about this school is that we're about concept. We're about big ideas, about that next big artist who's, who's just thinking outside the box. And again, I sold myself. I said... I was limited by where I was at. I was like, I was in a community college learning from drawing one, drawing two instructors who I had to do this stuff. I found out that art could save me. And I have ideas like I want to, I want you to know what it feels like to be blown up, not physically, but mentally. I was like, I want you to know what that loss of innocence war feels like. And I have all these ideas on how to do that. I just need a place to do that. And so the lady even brought in another guy to review my portfolio. And I gave him the same spiel. And he said, you know what? Let's give them a try. And so they gave me a shot. Dang. And it changed my life forever. So I, wow. I went there for two, two and a half more years, and, and I ended up getting my bachelor's from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. That is incredible. Going from this nowhere, small town, Washburn, yeah. to being at the best art school in the country. Man, what did you make there that you were super pumped about? So I, when I started, I got in on my painting and drawings. But the cool thing about uh, SAIC is that you cross into any art form and there's no grades there um <laughs> they're they because and it made total sense when i first tell people yeah. that they're like that's dumb how do you not be graded but how are you as a teacher going to decide if your piece about race is better than my piece about a military and like what if you have different views on it and and it may have took me 10 minutes to make my piece and it could just blow you away and it took this person eight hours but you're not going to give him a better grade for spending eight hours on it. You're going to rely on the piece. So this yeah. is more pass-fail. This is saying, you did your work. I enjoy your piece. Here's my ideas for it. You passed because you made it. And it makes total sense. But you could also cross into any sector you want. Once you get in there with painting and drawing, you can go to ceramics. You can go to collage. You can go to photography. And it just, because they think an artist is one, it's not one medium. It's yeah. every medium. And so I was so art dumb at the time. For one, I didn't have any influences because I didn't know any artists who they were. Um, and second, I didn't even know what ceramics were. I thought I was going to be playing with plates. Like I didn't <laughs> know before there were plates that they were clay. And so my friend was in ceramics classes. I went down there, and I just started playing with clay. And I was like, this is the best stuff ever. I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew I wanted to, to be with clay because... I used to think about war and anxiety and depression and Luke's death constantly. And when I would mess with clay, like three hours, four hours would go by, and I'd just get up and be like, I didn't think about war for like four hours. I didn't think about anything. I was wow. like, this is awesome. I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. Um, so I transitioned to the um, ceramics department. And again, when I first got to that school, I still had so many anxieties and depression. I was probably like, if I was at a nine when I first discovered art, I may have been probably like at a 25, 30 when I went to that school. So I still had anxieties, depression. Yeah. The first two days, of, they now. had freshman orientation and, and transfer student orientation. I could only make it to the very first... Oh, this is a great story, actually. You're going to love <laughs> this. Um, so the first two days, it's in this big auditorium. And when there's a lot of people, I'm not center attention. I could do stuff. So I go sit at the back table. There's already like this mother father sitting here. And I sit down. Um, and then all of a sudden, their kid comes and sits down this this art student who's just like kind of sitting there not looking up who just graduated high school and their parents are doing the parently thing and saying, Hey, this is my son, Zach. Aww. Like you should meet him. Yeah. He's like, mom. Um, and then I'm like, Hey, I'm Richard. And I'm just sitting back there not talking much. Cause I'm, again, I don't want to throw up. And I always carry a bottle of water with me too. Cause my mouth would get dry from anxieties. And then I would dry heave or throw up. Um, 
And so then they said, okay, now we're going to break out into groups and go over the rest of the day. Like this morning, I'd bounce. Each day, I only made it to that first initial, here's some talking points. And each time they broke into groups, I left because I was so bad with anxiety. So first day of classes come, and I have a collage class. It's my very first class. I always get there first, super early with my bottle of water. And um, I'm a, I go up to the third floor, get up to the door. There's not a window on the door like most classrooms have. And I'm like, I can't go in. I'm not going to be able to make it to school. My anxieties were so bad, I didn't want to be the center of attention for anything, which means if I open the door, people look at me, that would cause anxiety. So I'm sitting here outside this door, freaking out, thinking I'm not going to be able to do this school. Um, and I look down the hall, and here comes Zach, the one kid I met, oh. who's just like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> he comes up, and he starts going in. I was like, hey, are you in this class? He's like, yeah. I was like, I have this problem with anxiety, and I, if I don't have a battle buddy, I can't do things. So my best friend was shot and killed beside me when I was in war, and I was blown up four times, and I have a brain injury, and I, I had to have someone else know my story. And he's just, like, looking at me like, I don't even know what he was probably thinking. <laughs> like, I was like, can I go in there with you? He's just like, yeah. <laughs> and so he opened the door, and I just followed him and sat down. Um, and that was the, that's what changed my life is because learning that collage class, how I use everything anything. It could be a rapper. It could be anything. I could use that to tell my story. And so that transition to when I graduated, uh, I was at like 85. So I mean, back to almost normal. I can go out. I could talk to people. I could. Um, I had a job at this bar as a bouncer uh, where I was interacting with people. felt so alive. I still had some anxieties and depression and all that, but I felt alive. And I looked back at my life and said, is any other combat veteran who's never done art before going to choose art? as an option. The time they had 22 suicides a day in the veteran community. Um, and I was close to being one of those. And I saw this problem. I was like, there's a problem that nobody's trying art. They're doing like random little art therapies. And it, even back then it wasn't even a big push for it. But I was like, there's a problem that I, I think I just solved. I don't know how, but I think I just solved it. So I look back at my, my four years, four and a half years of, of doing art and actually, during the same time, if you go back to when I was at Bloomington, I was in the creative writing classes, and I was starting to think that, hey, I'm writing these poems, but these should be songs, because then if a person meets me and asks me my story, I could just say, oh, well, here's a song. Like, just listen to a song yeah. about my life, and I could just run. And like, like listen, <laughs> bye. Um, and so during this whole time I was explaining this art career, I was also learning, uh, my friend taught me a few chords on guitar, and I was learning how to write songs. Um, and so I'm in Chicago. I think it was right before I graduated, I met a songwriter in Nashville named Mark Irwin, who has like a ton of number one hits. And uh, I just approached him and said, again, I've been optimism. My, my whole life is just optimistic. Go after these things that nobody else thinks you can go after. I went up to him and said, hey, have you ever written with a veteran or for a veteran before? And he said, yeah, actually, I wrote a song with Billy Ray Cyrus called Runway Lights about a staff sergeant coming home from war. And I was like, perfect. I was like, I have been trying to write a song about my buddy who shot and killed, and I've written it, but it doesn't put him on the pedestal it needs to be. I was like, I have a brain injury. I have a lot of problems like learning new skills. If I just come to you in Nashville, will you help me tell my story? And he's like, yeah. He told me, <laughs> yeah. My first writing session was with Mark Irwin. So I drove wow. down. I actually filmed it. It's actually on YouTube called The Great American Co-Write. Really? It's kind of crazy. I told my buddy, I was like... Again, I'm always thinking about the future. Yeah. I don't know what's happened. I didn't have a nonprofit in mind. I didn't have anything in mind. I just said, we need to capture whatever this moment is. So he drove down with me, videoed me, asked me some questions, was in the writing session with me, like videoing it. I was able to just tell him things. And in three hours, we had a song, completed song that Man. I could share with people. Songwriters blow my mind. Yeah. 
it's the craziest thing about being in Nashville where I'm like, how did you make the, that phrase that you heard yeah. earlier today into an entire amazing hit? Yeah. It's, wow. it's absolutely amazing. And so he gave me that big opportunity. I came back super like on fire, ignited. Yeah. And so, again, back to the point where I just graduated the, the school and I have this, I, I know how to write songs now. And I'm, or I, I've had my story told, and I'm like, any veteran could just come and get a crash course in songwriting or art if I could design a program well enough. And so I, I was thinking about it a lot, and I had this buddy named Jesse. Um, he's actually in that photo over there. Um, he's lost his leg in Iraq, and he has burns over 60% of his body because of a, a, an IED that went off. And he doesn't like telling his story. He's from the same little small town I'm from. By the way, I was on my Harley when I took that, and I set the cruise, and I just turned and started really? shooting. It's uh, a really great <laughs> photo. Um, and I call it Freedom Ride because who he is, it's like that's the moment he feels the most free and what he fought for. But so I said, Jesse, I know you hate telling your story. You don't like people looking at you, but will you come to Nashville with me and write with the number one songwriter? <laughs> He's like, yes, he loved music. So he didn't have any like, I don't care what I'm talking about. I'm just going to go to Nashville and write with the number one songwriter. Yeah. And so I raised like a few hundred bucks on GoFundMe because, again, I didn't, really? I didn't think about – I wasn't thinking about nonprofit. I legitimately said, I want to help my friend. Yeah. Um, and so raised a few hundred bucks. We got a hotel by the airport for 45 bucks a night. We stayed in the same room. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. We stayed in the same room. And um, at the time, there's a, a band. Uh, they're still around. Blackjack Billy, Jeff Copeland, and uh, Noel Billings, and Rob um, Blackledge. And I met them randomly in, in Florida. And they said they would write with Jesse after I dropped Mark Irwin's name. Like, hey, I do this. I write with veterans. Uh, even though it wasn't a thing. And they, yeah. they're like, okay, come to Nashville and we'll write. So I brought Jesse down. And he just like, after he heard his own words in the music, he just spilled the beans. He told everything. He had this song within three hours. He went home. And his family was reaching out to me. Like, I never knew he thought like this. This is amazing. I finally wow. understand him. He and said, is he share, like, is he opening up to his family or he's just showing them the song? It's the tool. He's, so okay. he, he gives them the song saying, the thing is now we have veterans who are like, I can't tell my wife this. We write a song about it. The first person they text the song to is their wife. Because uh, it's a song. And so then it opens, got up, goosebumps. it opens up conversations that they didn't think that yeah. anybody else would understand. So they hear the song, feel the emotion. They're like, oh, my God, you really thought? And now they have this song to talk about. It's not them. So they're telling everything because wow. it's all focused on the song and not their story anymore. And uh, it's, it's changed his life. He's like, that three-hour writing session did more for me than the six years I spent at the VA hospital. Um, legitimately turned him around. It was so awesome. Um, so this happens. We write our song. I'm super pumped because I'm hearing all this feedback from his family. The same time, I meet this lady in uh, Chicago who's a philanthropist who's just like the best person in the world, randomly meets me the day before Veterans Day with a, a friend's dad who's wearing his, his camis and says, hey, I want to give you my three Bears tickets. Uh, I have box seats because it's salute to the veterans. Tomorrow, will you three go? I have three tickets. There's three of us. Will you three go in our and instead of us, me and my friends? I'll just cancel with them. And we're like, that's a great honor. Please, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so she gave us her tickets to this game. Like, just a random stranger gave us her tickets to this game. And they ended up playing. It was Chicago Bears, my team from Illinois, versus the Houston Texans, which is he's Luke's Bears in Houston. Yeah. On Veterans Day. Wow. Blew my mind. So I wrote back to her because, I, I mean, I, I went to her place to pick up the tickets. But I sent her an email about just saying, you know, the kindness of a stranger changed my, it was my best Veterans Day ever because you were able to give this. And I told her the story about Luke and why I was so passionate because Houston was playing and everything came together at once. And so she felt just like, she was like, I need to keep up with him. I was like, I need to keep up with her. We, we just would have like 
um, monthly we'd get together and eat food, just yeah. do like lunch or something like that. And right after I wrote with with Jesse, I went to her and I was just pumped. I was telling her about it and it just hit me. I was like, this needs to be like a nonprofit or something. <laughs> and she she said, I sit on some boards for nonprofits. I could pull some people together and we'll, we could do this. Wow. I was like, okay, let's do it. So she's <laughs> like, your vision, write out some programs, do the things that you want to do, and I'll help get the board and kind of govern this thing so that we can be legitimate because I believe in what you're doing. And so that's how it started. started with one guy I took to Nashville with like a few hundred bucks. Um, and then my big mission was to do arts, but I knew that songwriting would be more uh, more approachable, more veterans yeah. would be like, oh, yeah, writing number one songs than being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do art. Um, so it started with songwriting. So Creative Vets, which is the nonprofit that me and Linda co-founded, um, we started the first the first year, we probably only helped maybe eight veterans, and so maybe six veterans, but we paid for their flights, their food, their hotel, and we sent them up with number one songwriters or published songwriters to tell their story. And wow. so it started with Jesse, and then Jesse told some of his friends that he knew were suffering um, about it, and then they'd come out. And I was there. I understood at that moment that um, what I needed when I was almost suicidal, I was like, I need a battle buddy because my buddy Jeremy was there for me. I would just drive out to a cornfield crying, not knowing what was going on with me. And I called Jeremy because I didn't know what else yeah. to do. And he'd talk me out the ledge. And so I said, they need a battle buddy. I was like, they, if they don't have any money like I didn't, they, they need it paid for because I don't want any veteran to not have this option. Yeah. If you're in Alaska, if you're in Hawaii, I want you to be able to have the same opportunity I do if I'm in Nashville. Um, and then I was like, they need... Uh, so they need the money, they need that, and they need this excitement to outweigh their anxieties, which is the number one public songwriters. So they would, I would fly in, then they would fly in, um, and then we'd meet, or I'd drive down typically when we first started. I'd drive to Nashville, the seven hours, and then they would fly in, and we'd both have hotel rooms next to each other, and then I would take them out, and we'd listen to music, and we'd tell war stories, and I'd get them so comfortable with me that they could tell me anything, and then I would go into the writing session with them the next day with the two writers and help them tell their story when they couldn't, and be that really, like, I was, I was already at that point I was becoming a songwriter. I could still put in little things. I didn't feel like ultimately like I'm the songwriter behind yeah. it, but I felt like I was a, a, the facilitator making sure that they could tell their story. And so that started, but then I'm in these rooms, I'm in rooms with number one songwriters, pro songwriters, like now over 67 times. So like I became a songwriter obviously yeah. out of it. Um, and it, w- it didn't take but like three or four songs in that I felt like a songwriter. And I was like, this is perfect because I have the, the military language and the experience. And now being a creative and a songwriter, I was like, I could help bridge that gap. Um, and so, yeah, just helping more veterans come through the programs. And so we got to the point where I was like, now I want to incorporate art. I was like, how do I do this? And I talked to some people to kind of because the songwriting program is only three days. They fly in. They write the next day. They fly out the, the last day. We record the song for them, give it to them so they could talk to their family. Um, but I was like, what can we do with the arts that is kind of similar? And I was like, you know what? I just want people to know the arts an option. And why can't they just go to these art schools with no background? I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to the school of Arts in Chicago and tell them <laughs> that they need to enroll veterans who have no art background at yeah. all. So I went. I met with the vice provost. And I said, hey, here's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> I want veterans who've never done art before to know that art's an option. So I want to create a program that we allow them to just be in your school for like a summer semester, three weeks. And I just want to be there to help facilitate everything. And he was like, how about this? We'll do that, but you'll teach the school or you'll teach it. Really? And I, I was so blown away because you never know what you're going to get. And I, 
I went in there so timid and just like, I don't think this is going to happen, <laughs> and told him what I wanted and how the school saved my life. And he straight up just said, we're going to do this. You're going to be the teacher. Just run with it. Whatever you want to do. Find the veterans. Uh, we'll enroll them in the school. We'll waive the whole um, the artist stuff. If they've never done art before, we'll still bring them in as long as they apply for the creativist program. So that's what we did. Our first class <laughs> had like six veterans in it. Um, a Vietnam veteran from LA whose childhood dream was to go to the school there in Chicago. Really? And what's awesome about that is he's never done ceramics before. And that's one of the things that we teach. He's still enrolled in ceramics in LA. Like he, wow. he lived in his artwork. So amazing. That's great. Um, and so now we offer, so creative Ed's offers these three week fully accredited. We pay for their flights, their tuition, their housing, their food, all three weeks. They get to live in the dorms. They get to go to school like normal students, but they're with other combat vets who've been through what they've been through, taught by a combat veteran. And they learn art. Four of the veterans have been re-enrolled into the School of the Artists of Chicago. Wow. One in the grad program, who's ended up now taking over that class. So I could expand, which I did. I I went to Virginia Commonwealth University, the number one public art school in the country, set up a program there, ran it two years ago, a summer program. We have a program in December with the University of Southern California. So now we'll have a winter program. <laughs> I'm just like steamrolling these schools. I'm going to them like, you're going to allow veterans to come in here and do art. That's amazing. Are you changing. teaching all these or are you now passing it off to other teachers? I'm passing, too? I still go to do like some one-on-one. So this summer yeah. we offered two programs at the School of the Artists of Chicago, two, three-week courses. Um, and I would go in for the first, like the first one we offered, I went in for the first week. And then just handed it off to Joseph, who's teaching it. He did the last yeah. two weeks. And then the last one that we did, I went in for three days and then handed it off to Joseph. Almost like just getting him into the, we call it in the Marine Corps left seat, right seat, because you're training someone and you're going to just swap seats. And so that's what I was doing. I was training him to kind of take it over. So now that that's established, I'm able to go to these other schools like USC in December. It'll be our pilot program. I'll go teach for the, we'll do a two-week program there, teach for the whole two weeks, and then pass it down to another veteran who's been through our program who Perfect. could help teach. And then I'll move to another school and another school. Um, and, it's gonna, and then we're going to advance into the film. We're going to do film. Uh, we're going to do everything. I want Creative Events to be that arts nonprofit that if you're a veteran in Alaska, you don't want to come to one of our programs, but you love ceramics and you need a kiln, I want to be that nonprofit that could just write a check and provide that kiln for you so you can use the arts to help express yourself. Because art and music and storytelling legitimately saves lives. And uh, in the veteran community, we just don't know that because we're so used to not telling our story and carrying our own pack and not needing help from anybody else that we never get retrained how to how to like let that go and be vulnerable. So that's what I'm trying to do is retrain them how to be vulnerable. Wow. Man, dude, I love this. I think this is huge. <laughs> the experiences of other veterans, how closely have they mirrored your own experience versus, because I would imagine everybody has a little bit of a different uh, experience with different forms of art. Is it harder for some people to get into this? Is it easier for some people? What's that like? Well, I do it way different than probably anybody else. I um, there's like no rules. I'm not I'm not a clinical therapist. I we're not doing art therapy. We're not doing music therapy. But I understand that every art and all music is therapy to somebody. Like no matter if you're feeling down, if you're feeling up, whatever you want, you listen to music, you do art, and it helps you. So I approach it in the way that says, like too much of the art world alienates other people. Yeah. Um, out of it where they say you know, look at this rapper. It's, you know, about the world and it's all these different things. And (laughs) and they want you to almost feel dumb about like going up and not knowing what it was about. And so I do this thing where I make it so approachable and I allow the veterans, I do one-on-ones with every veteran. And I say, here's what happened to me. What happened to you? 
at the school, like second day, I'm in there, like me and you, yeah. you just went to war, you watch your buddy bleed out, you don't know how to talk about that, so you're in there with me, I tell you about my buddy dying, so you're like, well, my problem is that uh, my buddy was shot in this cornfield, and by the time we medevaced him, um, he bled out in my arms, but it was in a pomegranate field, so now my trigger is pomegranates. Anytime I see a pomegranate, I break down, I cry, I go into this this place of just bad place, and when they tell me sto- their story, I tell them what it looks like as a conceptual piece of art. Rather than saying, hey, come look at this Picasso. He changed the figure 80 times because of this, and he did this color because of this. They're not going to relate to it because it's not their story. They think it's dumb. They're in this place of like, eh, I don't know what that is. But when I say, what if you did a cornstalk that had the parchment of his, it, it, like just written out in ribbon or something, his dying words that leads to this pomegranate? I was like, to, for a minimalist, that could, be, that could be your biggest story in the smallest amount of space. You could say, he was shot here. He, these are his dying words, and he died in a pomegranate field. Because uh, I teach them about abstract art and how to like, hide their story. I say, if it's the hardest to talk about your work, make your work more abstract. If you're at a place where you could talk about it, we'll, we'll introduce a lot more like, you know, oh, I know what he did. He went through because this symbol's in there. I was like, if it's, if it's, you can't talk about it as abstract as you want because it helps you hide your story and talk about different things if you want to. If someone asked you about it, you could lie about it. <laughs> um, and me allowing him to understand what art is like that yeah. gave him such a crash course by the end of it. So he told me that it took the chopper 30 minutes to get there. So I told him, sometimes when you make art, the most important part is the part that people don't see. Um, I was like, so maybe incorporate 30 minutes somehow or do it 30 times. Um, uh, Just think about that when you're going out there and creating your piece. So now he's going into class thinking everything's art. I could use a pomegranate to show death. I never thought I could do that before. He didn't know he had the tools to do that. His in peace Fast forward is going to be in the Smithsonian um, for a show what? in June. Wow. So he, and he's never done art before. So he did this plaster mold. He got his hand, did a plaster mold of it. Uh, he got this whiteboard, or he got a board, painted it white. He dipped his finger into red paint and wrote, I love my life, which was his friend's dying words. It said, I love my life. I don't want to die. I love my life. He wrote, he set a timer for 30 minutes, wrote, I love my life. I love my life. And when that 30-minute timer went off, he just smeared his hand. And then on the hand that he had, he put pomegranate seeds that fell to the floor to a pomegranate. The cool thing was, was that second day when he told me pomegranate was his trigger, within that last week, because we do an exhibit at the end of the three weeks, he's like, Richard, I can't fa- find a pomegranate anywhere. I went to Target. I went to here. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking like, he doesn't have that trigger anymore. Oh, wow. He now yeah. sees a pomegranate as a positive, and he's using it for art and not as a got negative. goosebumps again. And so if we wow. can attack every single trigger, then all of a sudden they become better, and they could do what they want to do in life. I'm not trying to make them artists. I'm not trying to make them songwriters. Yeah. I'm trying to teach them how to transition to their artist brain so they could succeed in life. Kind of like I did. I didn't want to do business, but now I technically have three companies. <laughs> uh, so And that wouldn't have been possible if I would have never told my story through art. Yeah. Man, dude, okay, so you found a lot of success since you brought these things to life. You've gotten all kinds of partners, songwriters, schools. Also this year, you have been working with George W. Bush's, uh, what, what have you been doing with him again? So he started a program called the Veteran Leadership uh, Program. I think they call it VLP sometimes with my brain injury. I forget the actual <laughs> words to it. He selected uh, 33 leaders from around the country. doesn't matter if they're civilians or veterans. As long as they're doing something in the veteran space, 
um, you could apply for this program. And I got in and it's kind of like a, a cohort with the, the president's, uh, all his resources, all his people. And uh, so 33 of us were selected. And I mean, we got the CEO of Mission or CEO of uh, Easter Seals. Um, there's people from Prudential, from CVS, from Boeing, wow. uh, from Wounded Warrior Project. Mission continues, all these ginormous people than me. And I'm the only one doing arts with veterans. And I'm sitting here thinking like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like this is amazing. I, I so many resources, so many things have come out of that. Um, so many partnerships, and it's just been a great experience. And next month, I actually have to go out there in November. I get to go pitch a personal leadership project to the president and his resources wow. to hopefully get more funding for the program. I Man. mean, it's all about leadership traits, and they teach us everything in the veteran space. Each month is a new thing, so it's um, it'll be one veteran issue and one leadership trait. So it could be veterans in schools. And then the leadership trait is communication. And then uh, veteran health and wellness for veterans. And then uh, strategic partnership, which we went to the uh, Starbucks headquarters to learn about strategic partnership. So cool. And so, and they pay for everything. They fly you out there uh, to wherever they're going. They pay for your food for the whole time. So all three to four days are completely covered by them. And they're teaching you leadership traits and just giving you access to people that you don't have access to. Man. Um, so it's one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. Man, and President Bush has been doing all this incredible artwork too. So he started painting post-presidency. Yeah. What do you see that to mean as an artist who came out of war and started, you know, being able to process through things? Is that what he's doing too? Is he processing So I think things? he's, yeah, I thought from the beginning that he was processing things and it was a conceptual um, art piece that he didn't even really know he was doing, but like that subconscious like urging yeah. to do. And so I was lucky enough to be selected by time magazine um to have a documentary made on me kind of my Dude, life it's a great documentary <laughs> it's beautiful um, everybody should watch it it's it's so cool that they like i think they've only done like two videos time magazine's ever done two videos and i'm one of them um <laughs> it still blows my mind but what they thought at the time and i didn't really think about this i knew he was painting and i thought that was cool but when time came in to, to look at my storyline and say hey we want to film stuff from your childhood and all this stuff do you have video from war and from when you were a kid and all this stuff they're like what we want to do is introduce bush into the thing again because he's doing all this art with veterans and i thought about it and i was like this is crazy because i went from protecting george bush at camp david to going to war being injured learning how to use art to heal and now helping other veterans. And now he's using art to paint veterans that, that he, he's pretty much sent to war who were injured. And some of the veterans that I've helped do the songwriting actually were painted by him. Really? And at, th at this time, so we had no idea what to expect. And so they just reached out to Bush and said, um, they gave him like three requests. One was just to call me during the art program in Chicago that I was teaching while they were filming. One was like to paint me. I was like, that would be cool. <laughs> um, and I forget what the other request was, just maybe even come to Chicago. And so we didn't hear anything back from the Bush Center. And so filming wraps up. They were with me for 12 straight days. And this is kind of crazy too because I taught at VCU for three weeks. Um, at that time, it was only me and one other guy with Creative Vets. So I found all the veterans. I, I set up the classes. I wrote the syllabus. I worked with the teachers at the school. I uh, got all the flights for all eight veterans and then all the housing and all this stuff. And so I did that, and then I went to VCU. I taught for the three weeks. Um, and then Time Magazine, by the time I drove back from Vir Richmond, Virginia, Time Magazine was here to film. And so I had to do a songwriting session. And so they filmed me doing a songwriting session for three more days. And then they traveled with me up to Bloomington, Illinois, met in Washburn, met with my mom, met my teachers, <laughs> and then followed me to start the Chicago program for three weeks. For two months, I was straight just in Man. this realm of helping other veterans and telling their story and being recorded. 
Um, and then the filming stopped, and I didn't hear anything back at all. So then I get a text from the producer, Diane, and she says, hey, we heard back from President Bush. Uh, he wants to meet you uh, next week, Tuesday. Can you do that? I'm like, <laughs> yes. You're like, I will clear my schedule. Yeah, I got to bring my fiance at the time, my wife now, uh, got to bring her out there, and we got to sit with for 20 minutes and talk to, wow. to George W. Bush about art about art yeah. and everything else then he made everyone leave the room secret service the film crew and just spent some time with me and my wife gave me his portraits of courage signed as a Beautiful. wedding gift um and gave me like a presidential coin and her like a lapel and and then he gave me a crazy shout out during his talk a little bit later and talked about how i, I got over that tough guy marine image and went and studied art yeah. and, to help heal and uh just crazy how how we came together but from that instant i was just like I love what you're doing because you may not even know it, but you're, this is how you're coping with it. This is how you're helping like get over that kind of survivor guilt of not being there. Yeah. Does meeting with the president feel at all complicated to some degree because, you know, you lost your friend in a war that he started anything like that or. Oh no. I mean, again, for me, it's in understanding how everything works. Yeah. Um, especially DC when it, you have, so there's like seven different levels of advising that comes up. And so people like me, you, and like 10 other people would be in a room and we talk about the hot topics, the war, the Hurricane Katrina, all this stuff. And we talk about it and say, what's the best? We have to come up with solutions and we send up to the next level. Yeah. Those people see those solutions, the problems, and they come up with some stuff, work out those solutions, see what's the best for them, and they send it up. So by the time it gets to the president anyways, and he's meeting with his key advisors, which something awesome about Bush is that he will meet, no matter what the issue is, if he's already set on one side, he'll meet with three people from this decision or from this idea, like we're not for war. And then he'll meet with three people who are for war and he'll make them debate in front of him all the, the key ideas <laughs> That's of why great. he should or shouldn't. And so he's hearing it from that point. And at that time, people, a lot of people don't remember, but uh, America had like a, because after 9-11, we had like a 65, 70% um, go to war like attitude. Yeah. Everyone wanted to. He had like a 91% approval rating too. Yeah. And so you're like, all of a sudden we're all, the whole, the whole world's for it. Like, yeah, let's go do this. Let's go kick some butt. And then we go to war and some stuff happens. And now everyone's like, it's his fault. Like point the <laughs> finger. And I understand it's just his position. Any president at the time would have got so much trash for yeah. it. Um, I know I was meeting at a bar with my buddy, um, when I came back home right before I went to war and he was telling me about one of our friends that died and how, their parents blame Bush and all this stuff. And I was like, if you ever blame anybody other than me for the choices I'm about to make, then you're not my friend. I was like, I'm going to go over there. I know that I may die. I know that I may lose a limb. But that's why I'm going because I think it's bigger to go and, and not worry about this stuff. But if it does happen, you better just, if you're going to blame anyone, blame me because I'm the only one that makes the choice to go over. So even meeting him, any president about anything, it's, there's nothing complicated about yeah. it because I understand their decisions and what they're getting and what kind of hard decisions they have to make. And then look back at the time frame and be yeah. like, okay, everyone was for this. Any president would have said, let's go. Um, well, and he really is grappling with those decisions. You yeah. know, you can, you can see it in his, in his artwork. That yeah. He's really, he's processing the fact that, you know, he made this decision and it has repercussions. Yeah. And making a different decision would have had different repercussions yeah. and he would have had to deal with that as well. Yep. And so, yeah, for me, it's, it's nothing. And I never, it doesn't matter if, if someone, I'm a kind of person, I could relate to anybody, I could go up to anybody, talk, even if they wronged me, I could still, I could still have conversations. I could yeah. still, I'm, ne I'm never, if you put so much, 
burden on yourself or so much uh, hate for other people, you're never going to achieve anything. So if I stay positive and forget about anything else while it's in the moment, I'm always going to be moving forward. I'm never going to look back and be like, oh man, woe is me. There's a a, a famous quote uh, by an admiral that says, war makes a bad man worse and a good man great. And that's because when you get back and you're injured, you could either choose to step back and say, my buddy was shot and killed. I have a brain injury. I can't do anything. I'm just going to collect money, and then I'm going to make everyone feel bad for what I went through. Or there's someone who's just a normal good person who's like, I'm going to use what I just learned and all these like disabilities and ideas as experiences and help other people and become a better person. If I was never injured, I would still, I would still be a good person, but I wouldn't be doing the stuff I'm doing now. And I, I would do it 100% every time, again, replay that, everything I went through. I loved getting the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation with Richard. I, I've been a fan of him for a while now, and he's such a fun guy to talk to. And he talks about such heavy ideas in... I don't want to say a light way, but in a way that shows that he's made it to the other side to some degree. It's it's coming from a place of hope and knowing that he has a solution that can help so many more people. The work that Richard is doing at Creative Vets is truly incredible. And you can and should visit creativevets.org to see the artwork veterans are creating and learn more about their inspiring programs. And while you're there, please consider donating to support the work that they do. They currently have more veterans applying than they have the ability to pay for, so every dollar truly makes a difference. You can follow Richard Casper on Instagram at veteranart to see more behind the scenes from his life. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you connected with this episode, I think you'd also like my conversation with Allie Nelson. She is another artist who had a very bizarre way of ending up at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, I was so surprised when Richard shared that story, and I realized that I know two podcast guests who have ended up at the Art Institute of Chicago in a less than traditional way. So you can find that episode in more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered to your phone while you sleep. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix this show. They do an incredible job. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good 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 CO. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. It's a real-life newspaper. We have issues one, two, three, four, and five out. And you can actually get a bundle of our first four issues of the good newspaper for only $19.99. You can check that out and see what else we do at Good 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 at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode go out and experience the healing power of art and we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person sound good